HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. To learn more, visit rt11.com. World Central Kitchen is serving thousands of fresh meals to Ukrainian families fleeing home, as well as people remaining in the country. This week on Let's Talk About Food, host Louisa Kasdan spoke with Henry Patterson about his upcoming relief trip. So you're going to Poland, and I think you told me you're going to be there for at least two weeks. I'm going to Poland to help feed Ukrainian refugees. With Jose Andreas's World Central Kitchen, I decided that's what I wanted to do for my 70th birthday. I leave in just a few days. We all see that what the Russians are doing is contemptible. As a food person, we all love to help. It's in our DNA. And here are people who really need our help. So if you want to help the Ukrainian refugees, either with money or even your hands and heart, find hashtag Chefs for Ukraine and World Central Kitchen. We have to do something. We can help. Remember hashtag Chefs for Ukraine. Coming to you live from Stray Sod Country, I'm Kate McCabe. That's Max Sussman, and this is Dyed Green. Did you ever see that show um, or that movie with Christian Slater where he was like a pirate radio host? Are you fucking kidding me? What was that called? Uh, Yeah. I love that movie. What was it called? Remember he said talk hard at the end? That was that was that last line. Yeah, because Before it was like him off to the slammer for being a oh my unlicensed. God. Yeah, I totally know that movie. We should definitely watch it yeah, later. Yeah, classic, uh, you know, independent media cinema. Pump up the volume. Oh my God. Wow. We've got another amazing show lined up. Cannot wait to get into it. We spoke to Kristen Jensen. Kristen Jensen is a longtime food writer, editor, and the publisher of nine Bean Rose books and the brand new Blasta Books series, which is disrupting the cookbook scene in Ireland. If you listen to our first episode of Dyed Green, we spoke to Lily Ramirez Foran of Picado Mexican, who wrote the first in the Blasta Books cookbook series called Tacos. Yeah, so great to talk to Kristen about her work and to get uh, our finger on the pulse of the Irish 
cookbook publishing industry and to learn a little bit more about what she's up to and how she's trying to influence that world. One of the things that I thought was really, really fascinating about talking to Kristen was to learn about the Irish cookbook uh, publishing industry and to hear about some of the challenges that her authors faced uh, in trying to get their stories out there. It's really related to what we do as Bong and Thunder and kind of um, unsurprisingly, a lot of the authors faced a lot of challenges and found it very difficult or impossible to get cookbook deals prior to linking up with Kristen and Dining Bean Rose and uh, Blasta Books. So what she's doing is really uh, consciously trying to amplify voices in Irish food that aren't necessarily uh, finding and they have an audience, but they haven't really been able to get exposure or distribution. It's really similar to what we're doing. And I think we've found a lot of connection on that topic and issue. I agree. The stories that aren't being told through food. Um, sad. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a huge, it's a problem, but it's also an opportunity. It's a, it's a way to reframe the bigger story. Well, enough yammering on. Here's our interview with Kristen Jensen. Well, thank you so much for, for agreeing to talk to us and for being on Dyed Green. We're really excited to talk to you today. Excited to chat with you as well. So um, first off, just to get started, we wanted to say congratulations on Blasta Books. It's all really exciting. As you know, we talked to Lily recently about her book, Tacos. I've told you how beautiful I think it is. Um, but it seems like, you know, from what I'm seeing on social media and conversations, articles that I'm seeing that other people are as excited as we are and that, um, you know, that you've had incredible feedback for that. Yeah, it's really quite overwhelming, not least because... It's just me behind the curtain here of this, you know, publishing company. <laughs> so, um, and it, it's still like, I still can't believe that one year ago, it was just an idea in my head that I had only told a few people about, including all the authors who at this point I had reached out to and signed up, but I still was so unsure. I thought, okay, well, I think this is a good idea, but I have no sense of whether or not anybody else is going to think so too. So it was so rewarding during the Kickstarter phase when we launched the project to see that it got such a great response then. But now that it's actually, our first book is actually out in the world. And of course, with any kind of creative endeavor, there's always that last minute, like, oh, please, everyone be kind, be nice. You know, I hope everyone likes it. But to see it take off as it has, has just been, I still can't, I can't think about it too much or I would get completely paralyzed. So it is, I couldn't, I couldn't have hoped for a better reception, honestly. Like what, what would top, you know, Nigella Lawson recommended the book, um, you know, a couple of weeks after it was published. Like what, what tops that? That's amazing. Can you talk about the Kickstarter and the part where you were envisioning the project? How did the idea come about and how did you decide to do a Kickstarter and like, what was your thinking about which authors to include and the size of the books and some of those more detailed format questions? Sure. All right. So to go back to the very start, it was the summer of 2020. So first year of the pandemic here in Ireland, we had very, very strict lockdowns. I think at that time we could go 20 kilometers from your house. So it was still, we were still really limited in what we could do and who you could see. So spending a lot of time at home. Everything had slowed right down, you know, in terms of getting off the whole hamster wheel of life. Lots of time to think, basically. This was also when the Black Lives Matter protests were really in full force in the States. 
after George Floyd. And I mean, I don't need to tell you guys, but that kicked off um, some of the ripple effects of that were conversations that started happening about representation, who's represented, what voices, what stories are being told. That trickled down then into food media. And I was seeing those conversations happening in the US and the UK, but not in Ireland at that point. So you kind of put all these things together, these protests and conversations happening, more time on my hands. And also I'd been a freelance editor for 20 years and had just plateaued in that. And I had done for a couple of years and was just thinking, okay, I still enjoy my job. I enjoy the work, but is this really what I'm going to be doing for the next 25 years? You know, I'm not learning anything new. I mean, that's great because you're not stressed out, but it's, it was a bit boring. So put all those together. And I, my head just started thinking, okay, I understand how publishing works. I understand in particular with cookbook publishing that it's very, very expensive because of all the extra inputs that other books don't have, like the photography and styling, the color, the hardcover, you know, all of it. And yet I was convinced that there had to be another way to get more voices out there. And as a consumer, as a reader, I was increasingly frustrated and bored with what was being published. It was just very stale. It was, you know, everything was either, well, here, let me give you the statistic. In 2019 or 2020, I forget now, of the top 10 best-selling cookbooks in Ireland, they were all either vegan, weight loss, or like quick cooking themed. And I thought, okay, that's fine. They obviously have their place. But what about all the rest of us who actually like to cook? and aren't trying to go on a diet and are happy with our, you know, omnivore, carnivore status. You know, there's, it's, there's a lot of people who fall into that category who aren't being catered for. So all of this kind of got put into the pot and that's where Blockbooks came from. So I hit on the idea, like we were asking about the format. This was my whole thinking about, okay, there's got to be another way. Technology has moved on, you know, printing is cheaper than it was, you know, 20 years ago in terms of full color and photography and things like that. So I knew about from the States, this project that was called Short Stack Editions back um, maybe about 10 years ago. And they were these little mini books that were centered around a single ingredient. They had like broccoli or lemons or strawberries, yogurt, and they would get these high profile food writers or kind of behind the scenes industry people rather than celebrity chefs to write each book. So I knew about them. There's a cafe in the UK called um, Cafe Leon, and they had a series of small little books that I had seen. And then Avoca Cafe here in Ireland, they had a series of mini books, which was really clever. They were just kind of extracted from their existing cookbooks, but all around a single theme. So it'd be like salads or cakes. So I, I had these three series as precedents for a small book. So I thought, okay, I just make a small book that's small in size, small in page numbers. We illustrate it instead of going the whole route of food stylist, home economist, photographer to, to, to save on costs as well. And I was just trying to figure out a format that was still a book, not a booklet or, you know, something. Um, so it's hardcover and yet affordable to produce, but also affordable to buy. Because I think the problem too with cookbooks now is if you're looking at spending 35 or $40 on a cookbook, you want to be damn sure that you're going to like it. So it's so the low price of the Blasta books, I hope will encourage people to experiment a little bit more as well. 
So that's that's in a nutshell where the idea came from, how I hit on the the smaller format. And then Kickstarter, it was a toss up between doing a Kickstarter or going to the bank because I had this idea, but I didn't have any money. So I had a bit of a tax refund that I happened to have from the year before, but that was it. And, you know, that wouldn't have even been enough to do one book. So I decided to go for the Kickstarter rather than the bank because it was a great way to not only test the market for the idea, but also to create buzz in anticipation of the first book coming out, which if I hadn't done that and I had just gone the bank loan road, it would have been, I think, much harder to have, like, how, how would I have announced, like, hey, ta-da, we have this thing and here it is and I hope you all pre-order it. So in my case, the Kickstarter functioned effectively as just pre-ordering the books um, like you would on Amazon. but with all the cash flow coming right to me to seed the company to, to get the project off the ground. We're curious a little bit, um, you know, following on from your, your example with Blasta, to build on your, um, your point about representation. We spoke to um, Jess Murphy recently for our podcast, and she's told us a few times about her frustration with cookbook publishing in Ireland. And she had mentioned that she brought um, the concept um, for a cookbook about Kai um, to a bunch of publishers and she kept getting turned down. And when we heard that, you know, having eaten at Kai many times and I mean, just makes incredible food, um, we were pretty surprised by that. And so I'm wondering if you might be able to talk a little bit about um, why you think that might have happened. Maybe, maybe more, more broadly, if, if, you know, if you don't want to comment specifically on, you know, somebody else's experience, but just as a publisher. Um. Yeah, absolutely. So this, this goes back to what I was saying before about, like, I get it that it's difficult and expensive to produce a cookbook. So therefore, a publisher is going to want to be as certain as possible of recouping that investment. But what that translates into is that it has to be and this is where you start getting into a bit of a catch-22 situation. Either somebody really high profile in terms of they have already a TV tie-in or they have some kind of platform, whether that's a restaurant or a cooking school or, or a shop, you know, whatever it might be, or a humongous social media following that they can use to sell a book. So it, it's, you know, so it's... Really frustrating if you're someone like Jess who, okay, so she's got the platform and we can talk about Lily as well. Lily Ramirez Foran, who is our first Blasta book author, same exact experience. She has a strong voice, solid concept. She, they both do have a platform. Like Lily has her shop, Picado. Jess has the restaurant Kai. And yet it was just, it's, it's not mainstream. So again, like it, it all comes back to the same problems over and over again. And not just in publishing, you can say the same thing about who gets the television programs, who's in magazines, who's in newspapers, who gets to be the columnists. So it's, yeah, like I say, it's this catch-22. It's like, well, how do you get the TV tie-in if you don't also have the book deal? But how do you get the book deal if you don't have the TV tie-in? And, you know, how are you meant to connect all these dots in the right order for somebody just to give you that? foot in the door. And then the metric that's often used these days is looking at people's social media following. And if you've got, you know, a six-figure Instagram followers, 
your chances of getting a book deal are much increased, even though it's also widely acknowledged that those numbers don't always translate into sales. So that's, you know, a false sense of security in, in terms of who you're signing up. So again, that is part of my frustration and why I was looking when I was thinking about what authors to sign for the first year. It was focused on the authenticity and the strength of the person themselves and their food rather than their profile necessarily. And because I, from the start, am unapologetically catering to the niche of people who I'm not trying to convince to cook. I'm not, you know, these aren't people who are just trying to get in and out of the kitchen in 15 minutes. They like cooking. They enjoy spending time in the kitchen. It actually is completely liberating in terms of who and what you can publish. So to me and to a lot of people, the fact that there is no Kai cookbook yet is ridiculous. And yet there's, you know, how many books on midweek meals and, you know, vegan. And it's again, it's like, that's great. Except there's, there's a whole bunch of us who want something else and want something more. And, you know, not just that, or whatever the latest craze is, you know, for, well, I don't, I don't even know, whoopie pies or, <laughs> you know, so, so it, it really is a problem of the mainstream dictating what gets published, who gets heard, because it's the safest bet. And I get that from a business point of view. It's a really great business plan, but it makes for a very boring scene. So we're really interested in Irish food, as you are, and I'm sure you know. So um, who, who's the audience for Blasta Books in terms of, you know, where they all, where they live and what they do? And what do you hope to shift about the conversation around Irish food by publishing these books? So the audience is primarily Irish, and that is who I'm kind of writing for. But we've it's been fascinating because, again, it's just me here. I'm shipping all the books that have come through the website. I've shipped tacos from Anchorage, Alaska to Austria, to Australia, you know, and everywhere in between. So it's amazing because I'm kind of going, I have no idea how these people are finding out and you're you're looking at some of the names you're like okay that's obviously an irish expat you know from from the name but some of them i'm like who are these people how did they come across it so that's fantastic but either way whether it's an irish audience or an international audience my hope and this is one of the underlying um, points of the whole project is exactly as you said to move the needle forward on the story of irish food so if you look at our first four books our first book is Tacos by Lily Ramirez Foran, a Mexican-Irish woman. Our second book is all about deep fried food by Russell Alford and Patrick Hamlin, who go under the name Gastrogaze. The third book is called The United Nations of Cookies, which is by Jess Murphy and Owen Klusky. And that's themed around um, immigrants and refugees who have made Ireland their home, and they've all contributed a cookie recipe. And then the fourth book this year is Walk by Kwan Ji Shan who was born in Hong Kong, but moved to Ireland when he was eight years old. And then there's me, the publisher, who's American, but has lived in Ireland since 1999. And I love it when we all get together, or if you're even just looking at all our photographs or hearing us all talk. This, th these are the faces and voices of modern Ireland. That these tacos made with Irish produce are just as good as anything you will find anywhere. 
And then that carries through across the board. Kwanji had this um, fantastic quote in an interview he gave recently where he said, you know, his food isn't fully authentic Chinese, but then he isn't either. So it just, you know, it, it opens up this huge, amazing intersection of, of Ireland and international food and what is Irish food and who gets to call themselves Irish. You know, I have dual citizenship. I've lived in Ireland longer than I lived in the States. And yet, at least once a week, I still get asked, oh, are you here on holiday? As I'm handing over, you know, my Irish bank card, and it's like, no, this is as Irish as I'm ever going to sound. <laughs> you know, am I ever going to get to call myself Irish or think of myself as Irish? Or anyway, that's <laughs> going down a rabbit hole there. But it's definitely, I'm looking to advance the story and change perceptions of Irish food. It just being the day after St. Patrick's Day today, this time of year drives me crazy to see the recipes that get rehashed every year. You, you'd think looking at what gets promoted abroad that all we eat is soda bread and beef stew and desserts with Baileys in them. It's like, you know, that's, that's fine, but there's so much more to Irish food than that. It's so diverse. We're so cosmopolitan. And people don't realize that. And a lot of Irish people don't realize that. So that's what I'm trying to shine a light on and to just update the story, get away from those old, tired stereotypes and just bring Irish food into the 21st century where it already is anyway. On that note, can we jump back a little bit in time um, to around 1999 um, when you said you moved to Ireland? Um, Why did you move to Ireland and were you involved in food writing? when you came to the country or is that something that you got involved in after you moved? Yeah. So I met a guy who's, who, as it happens, is also American, but his mom is Irish. So he always grew up with dual citizenship. He was living in Ireland when I met him. He was the older brother of my housemate. And long story short, we hit it off. I still had a year of college left to go, moved over one week after I graduated college thinking it was just going to be for a year, maybe two, as, a, as an adventure. And then that was 1999, and here we still are. And in terms of the food writing, like I studied English in college, so I moved over and started working in publishing, but I was working for this like business and law publisher. And then from there, I went and I was doing like reports for this financial company and kind of going down this financial track, which I really didn't want to, but that was just what was available at the time, then did freelancing, but just kind of stumbled into the whole food writing aspect of it. I got handed a cookbook to edit um, one day. It wound up being Rachel Allen's first cookbook. And that also coincided with getting more um, comfortable here in Ireland. I'd been here a couple of years. I used to go to the grocery store and just look at everything. I wouldn't even necessarily, you know, I, I might have to buy one thing, but I would just walk up and down the aisles looking at everything because all the brands were different. And, you know, sometimes the names of things are different and just trying to get my head around it all. So at this point, I had, you know, figured that all out and, and uh, was starting to get interested in cooking myself. So to start editing cookbooks was this really nice intersection that I hadn't been looking to get into. But then once I did, I just ran with it because I happened to be interested in it myself anyway. And then the more I worked on them, the more I got into it. And then it wound up becoming like my, my niche, my specialty you know, that I became known for. 
amongst the other stuff I was working on, actually, most of the stuff I would work on was textbooks, which I always say are really quite similar to a cookbook. They're both highly structured. They're both, you know, you've got to be very clear and communicate the message or the instructions or, or whatever it is. So there was a lot of really good parallels, as it turned out, between those two things. But it's not anything I meant to get into or had in mind. In fact, uh, when I think of all the food writers I know, everybody came at it sideways, you know, from whether it was other careers or an interest that grew into something more. But nobody, and maybe it's different now for younger people, but nobody I work with went straight into food writing, wanting to do that right off the bat. What were your first impressions of Irish food when you arrived? And how would you describe the changes that have occurred in the Irish food world since then? They have been for the better. (laughs) 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 And that's mostly in terms of availability of ingredients. It's nothing to do with, you know, the food as it's kind of cooked or prepared. That's always been very good. But when I moved to Ireland, I could not find... A lot of things like I remember getting a Jamie Oliver cookbook and feeling like I couldn't make anything in it. Also, I lived in Drogheda, which is north of Dublin. It's a big town, but it's still back then. Well, everywhere was the same. Like I remember wanting to get lemongrass or something to make some curry. It was like not a hope, you know, there's just no way. I remember finding sweet potatoes for the first time and being so excited. They were in this little convenience store and And one time I found a butternut squash and we had a friend over. I just had it sitting on the counter and she came over and she goes, what's that? (laughs) I was like, oh, it's a squash. She's like, well, what's it look like inside? And how do you, how do you cook with it? And, you know, these are not even the most exotic ingredients, but never mind things like, or or I'd go to um, the supermarket and the checkers here have to, uh, input everything individually, you know, like if it's a banana or an orange or whatever. And it was an avocado. And the woman was like, what is this? How do you use it? And I remember thinking, am I the first person who's ever crossed your path buying an avocado? <laughs> like, that can't be. I can't be the only person in this big town buying avocados. So as time has gone on, ingredient availability has just gotten better and better. And now we have, back in Drogheda, like, multiple Asian supermarkets, Polish stores. There's nothing I couldn't get if I really wanted it. You know, I might have to do it online, but those days of not being able to make even a Jamie Oliver recipe are happily behind us. So that's been really exciting. And a lot of people put that down to, to um, you know, the increase in travel and people traveling more widely and then coming back with a taste for more different kinds of cuisines. And you've got things like the Autolenghi effect, you know, who popularized things like pomegranate molasses and sumac. And then, of course, immigrant communities, you know, Ireland has become a country of immigration rather than emigration, you know, people coming to Ireland rather than people leaving. So all of that has added up to a really vibrant and diverse availability. Like even in my small town where I live now, there's a Polish food store and even the major supermarkets here, because there would be quite a big Polish community in my area. Even the big supermarkets would have, you know, Polish food sections. And so it's just goes to show, you know, how far things have come. This episode is brought to you by Route 11 Potato Chips. 
From the moment Route 11 dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate, an incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Route 11 potato chips believe comfort food can be just that. Know where your food comes from. To learn more, visit rt11.com. So you co-wrote a book um, called Slancha, The Complete Guide to Irish Craft Beer and Cider. I am interested in hearing a little bit more about your um, impressions of the craft beer scene in Ireland. It also seems like the craft beer scene has kind of exploded in more recent years and that it's more of a relatively new phenomenon in Ireland. Well, it's new when, like, in comparison to the scene in the U.S. or the U.K., and yet at this point, so it was, it was brand new when I wrote Slancha, which was published back in 2014. And yet now it's, it's kind of like those other ingredients I was talking about. Now I can go to, you know, the local convenience store and there'll be at least, you know, two or three craft beers available. Whereas it used to be, you could only get them in dedicated off licenses, which is what we call liquor stores. You know, they were hard to find and kind of um, almost on purpose, it seemed like you know, to keep them like cool and niche. So, but now it's, it's actually a totally mainstream product and not ever going to be as popular as, you know, the, the Heineken's and the Carlsberg's and, and this kind of thing, but it's here to stay. And, you know, when we were talking about Jess's, prob- you know, difficulties getting published, that book was a hard sell. You know, we were told, oh, craft beer is just a passing fad. So, you know, it was, it's like, we really disagree, but, you know, okay. You know, we have been proved right in the, in the long run. In terms of my own palate, I don't know. That's hard to say. I just really didn't like it. It was just so... <laughs> and I remember my final straw was I was out with some colleagues and telling them this shameful fact that I just didn't like Guinness. And they said, oh, we'll try it with some black currant syrup. That's how a lot of girls drink it. So I tried that. Like, that's even worse. It's like cough syrup. And so then I didn't touch it for years. And I just thought, no, I just don't like it. I was at a festival. And this was when craft beer was just starting to be produced here. And uh, part of this festival, this food festival was a craft beer tasting. So little cups were being passed around. And I get this um, porter. And it was just blew my mind because it was chocolatey and it was smooth and it wasn't just kind of, you know, bitter and flat and one dimensional. And so that, and I, I always think it's funny because the name of that was the dark arts. And like, so it's my gateway back into, you know, liking beer. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So then I, I gave it another try and tried to be, you know, become more adventurous. And I suppose as with anything, whether it's wine or food or beer, once you start learning more about it and appreciating like how to taste things and to, you know, aromas and trying to pick up those notes of, oh, this, this is got vanilla or this is cherry or this has, you know, pine or whatever it is. 
it, it makes you like you, you don't go back once you've opened that door, you know, to things that aren't as tasty and you just appreciate, I think, everything a lot more. So it made me more adventurous in terms of what I wanted to try. And it was new and fun. And you very much felt like because there's only a handful of brewers and cider makers, you felt a real connection that you were supporting these people and their business as well. What's something that, um, you know, we talk about like, uh, you know, new, more, more ingredients becoming widely available, which is amazing, but it also kind of makes this narrative of like, oh yeah, Ireland's catching up. But what's something about Ireland that, you know, you just, your mind is blown by that doesn't exist somewhere else? I think a lot of people would say this too. It's our raw ingredients, like the, the, the produce. It's just so delicious. Like whether it's butter and it's funny, you know, people do rhapsodize about new season potatoes and the taste of them. And potatoes aren't necessarily something you think about as having a taste. It's more just like carbs, comfort, get it in you. you know? But here, there's so many different kinds of potatoes and people are very particular about the ones they use for roasting or the ones you use for mash or those new season potatoes that you only would ever just kind of steam with a little bit of butter and salt and that's it. And people, it'll be like the best thing you eat the whole year. So the meat is amazing. I remember being in France a good few years ago and having some beef there. And I was like, oh, it's so dry and tough. And the fact that almost all Irish beef is grass-fed beef, it's not even a selling point because it's just the way it is. Whereas in the States, that's, you know, premium top dollar product. So like actually where I live, I'm surrounded by um, beef farmers. So I look out my windows and I just, I just see cows you know, all summer long. And yeah, so it's, to me, it's just the quality of the, of the raw ingredients. And the fact that we are a small island and we do get very hyper-local. And you guys know this as well, you know, from the tours you're planning, you know, whether you're talking about the Boeing Valley or, you know, the Wild Atlantic Way. And yet to me... Coming from the States, I can't help but think that all Irish food is local food, that the footprint is never very far, you know, and then if you can get even smaller again within your own locality, that's, a, that's even better. But the fact that things aren't traveling thousands of miles and I mean, obviously I'm not, you know, being naive, we import plenty of food, but yeah, it's, it's the raw ingredients. Like you just can't beat it. And then like any chef would say, if you know, you can only do so much if what you're working with to begin with isn't the best quality. I'm curious as to, in your opinion, who are some of the people in Ireland that are doing really exciting things about food? It's a tough one because I'm, I'm also trying not to pay too much attention to a hot thing right now, because that can be, especially in Dublin, we go through phases of where there's a new restaurant opening every other minute. And you just can't keep up. And then by the time you kind of get to last week's hot new opening, there's 10 more. And, you know, I've got this backlog because I don't live in Dublin of restaurants. I still haven't been able to try. That's as long as my arm, especially with COVID. I suppose one thing that took off here during the pandemic that I think was long overdue was street food. And that was born out of necessity because you couldn't have your restaurant open or you could only have such limited capacity or you could only sit in for 45 minutes. So street food finally became a thing 
in Ireland. And in fact, last year, the big joke was you couldn't actually get a horse box for a horse because everybody had bought them to turn into coffee cans. <laughs> and they, you know, but that's great. It was so nice to actually, you know, go to the beach for a walk. And now there's like a place where you can get a coffee and a scone where there had never been before. And that's, again, where I live in Laos, never mind what was happening in Dublin. So that's been really fun to see. There was even a program last year on the national broadcaster RTE called Battle of the Food Trucks, where they had, I don't know, maybe six different food trucks from around the country, you know, process of elimination, who's, who's the winner. But that show couldn't even have been made five years ago. So I hope that's something that's here to stay because again, it's, and actually I say, lots of books are to cookbooks, what street food is to restaurants. It's both of them are just this fun, affordable, accessible way to try different things. So I would love to see that keep going on here. And I hope it has it like now that we're going back into normal times that, that that's still around because it's really fun and inventive and it tends to be the different cuisines. Like you'll have, um, there's a Filipino food truck, you know, there's Mexican taco food trucks, there's uh, Kwanji. Chan, my author for Walk, you know, he had a food truck selling Asian food. Uh, so it, it's also a great way to kind of get a handle on some different cuisines as well. So we're a travel, a food show, and we're also a travel show. And a lot of Americans just think of Ireland as basically Dublin, like go in, get, drink some beers and leave. What are some of your favorite regions to visit in Ireland? And where do you like to go if you are, you know, taking a, a little short trip for, for the weekend or whatnot? I love Sligo. And this is one of those things like, oh, I hope now, you know, like the Lonely Planet will recommend something. And now, you know, a little hole in the wall becomes not the hole in the wall anymore. I love County Sligo. It's only a two hour drive from Dublin and it's on the West Coast. It's on the Wild Atlantic Way. Now, from where I live in Louth, it's a three hour drive. And every single time out there you know we laugh it's like oh let's get ready for our coast to coast you know road trip <laughs> it takes three hours <laughs> which we have enough snacks and <laughs> amusements but i love sligo and um like i said it's on the wild atlantic way it's only two hours from dublin and yet totally different landscape it's more of the postcard ireland that i think a lot of americans might think about you know with the rugged landscape uh, the, the the ocean, the mountains, Ligo itself is has gone undergone in maybe the past five years in particular. Um, they've really made an effort to put themselves on the map, you know, with tourism. And there's lots of great restaurants and food producers. They've got their own food trail in the town and in the county. Uh, so my in-laws live there half the year. They spend the other time in the states, and when they are here in Ireland, they live in Sligo. So we. It's kind of come our home away from home. And it's really lovely because my children are now growing up with this special connection, you know, to Sligo in particular and these memories. And because we're going back to the same place time and time again, you know, you have your traditions and your favorite places you like to go. And I love that they've got these memories of a place that is their second home effectively because it's where their grandparents live. So I highly recommend Sligo. And because it's a big enough town, it's also Yates country. So there's, there's loads to do, you know, for tourism. And it's not a million miles away. It's not like you're spending half a day on a, on a bus or, or in a car to get there. 
you have three more books that you're rolling out for um, Blasta in series number one. What What's next on your agenda? Well, I've got for year two, I have three out of the four books lined up. So I'm just trying to because I'm trying to I'd like to achieve a balance, you know, across the year, ideally geographically as well, which is tricky trickier than you think, especially in relation to your last question, just about everything being so Dublin-centric. But in addition to Blasta Books, I also have, so Blasta Books is its own little series, its its own um, project. But the parent company, I guess you could say, of Blasta Books is the publishing house, Nine Bean Rose Books. And again, like that comes from Yates country. In fact, it was last year coming back from Sligo and I was trying to think of names for the company and I was we were halfway across the country and it just popped into my head, you know, Nine Bean Rose, which is from a, from a Yates poem, having just come from a weekend there out in Sligo. But for Nine Bean Rose, I've got a, um, a full-size cookbook that I'm bringing out this autumn that um, it's, I'll be announcing maybe in another four or six weeks or so. But so that's really exciting because that's more the traditional cookbook, you know, with the photography, a bigger size um, somebody, you know, a completely different author, not any of the blessed authors, and yet still following that same principle. Like this is somebody who's got a really fantastic voice, a really fantastic concept, great things to say, good things to teach. I think you're going to love it when, when it comes out. I know you're going to love it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm confident. Yeah, I'm confident about it. I'm excited. So so that is, uh, that's really exciting because i it's new territory yet again, because it's now, like I say, the full size book and standalone, you know, not part of a series, but that's also, so I'm trying to do this two things together. I've got the Blasta series, which, you know, is the four books a year, but then under the Nine Rose publishing imprint to bring out some of these, you know, bigger cookbooks every year as well. And then they, they're also interlinked because some of the Blasta authors can become Nine Bean Rose authors, you know, if, if you see what I mean. They start with the small book, but then, you know, depending on what really resonates with people, like then book number two becomes the big traditional book with 100 recipes and photography and all of that. Amazing. Well, we'll have to keep checking in um, about all these projects as you continue to change the conversation about Irish food and we'll see how that progresses, right? Yeah, well, keep an eye on this book coming out in terms of changing the conversation about Irish food. You'll see it all will be revealed. You'll all get this when it comes out. <laughs> but it's very much in, in keeping with, with that. Yeah, that's really exciting. Dyed Green is a project of Bog and Thunder, whose mission is to highlight the best of Irish food and culture through food tours, events, and media. Find out more at bogandthunder.com.